You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Brian Wilcox, Chief Engineer and Co-Founder of Marine Bioenergy Incorporated. I had this concept of taking the plants to the nutrients instead of taking the nutrients to the plants. So we filed a patent on that. And that's the basis of marine bioenergy is the concept, which is now patented worldwide, the concept of of taking the plants down to the nutrients at night and bathing the plants in the nutrient-rich water all night and then bringing them back to the surface. Now, we did not know whether this would work, so we wrote proposals to government agencies to try to get funding to show that it would work. And eventually we wrote a proposal that was accepted. And so we were funded by the U.S. Department of Energy, the so-called Advanced Research Projects Energy, ARPA-E, And we did, in fact, show that it does work. So we had a a, a group of test plants, about 30 plants, that we depth cycled daily for 100 days. And those plants grew much faster plants in the adjacent native kelp beds here off the coast of California. So we are very thrilled that it did, in fact, work. I was pretty confident that it would work because it's long been known that organisms tend to grab nutrients wherever they can and whenever they can and stockpile them for lean times ahead. So it was not surprising that at night, if you expose them to nutrients, that they will absorb those nutrients as fast as they possibly can. And then they use them the next day when the sunlight to do photosynthesis. So we did show that this concept is viable, and that now leads to the next step, which is to build a prototype farm. So we're now negotiating our next round of funding with RPE, and that will start in the second quarter of next 2022. And we expect to build and test the first ocean-going farm. The farm that we plan to build has a drone submarine, and the the drone submarine will tow the farm. We expect to build individual farms that are about eight hectares, and then we would build ultimately a very large number, hundreds and thousands of lignans and cellulose are very hard to break down. Uh, There's been an effort now decades long to try to process so-called lignocellulosic biomass, woody biomass, and it's very difficult to convert woody biomass into useful energy products. And that's because the wood and the lignin are very tightly bound molecules that do not want to untangle themselves. They're great for what they do, which is they provide mechanical support to terrestrial plants to get them higher than the adjacent terrestrial plants. So in the forest, of course, you have this tendency to want to reach the canopy and to be the highest one in the canopy to get the sun. And if you don't get to the canopy, you often don't survive. So you need this woody biomass in order to create a tall structure that is very strong, can survive windstorms and things like that. The land plants have evolved wood in order to solve this problem about competing access to the sun, whereas in the ocean, you don't need wood to do that. The kelp can attach itself to rocks at the bottom at a depth of somewhere between 10 and 30 meters, and then it head to the surface, and it doesn't need wood to do that. What it has, instead, it has little flotation bladders. So every blade, a blade is like a leaf, except it's big. It's like a palm leaf. It's half a meter long or more. It has a little flotation bladder at the base of each frond, and that frond then floats the whole thing to the surface. Now, in our case, because we depth cycle, the pressure change going down damages the, the bladder. And so we actually, in the depth cycled kelp, we do not 
get bladders filled with gas, we get bladders filled with liquid because the pressure changes during the daily depth cycle are huge. And the gas would either implode or explode depending on whether you're going down or going back up. So it turns out that the plant doesn't seem to mind depth cycling. The bladder is filled with liquid, but since we're in control of the depth of the plant, it doesn't really care as long as it gets its sunlight during the day and gets its nutrients during the night. It's very happy and it thrives as if it were in near ideal uh, growth conditions. Our focus is primarily on liquid fuels because liquid fuels are relatively valuable. It's the highest value product that we can make to have an impact on climate change. In order to replace 10% of the liquid fuels used in the United States of America, we would have to process the kelp growing from an area about the size of the state of Utah. And Utah is, of course, a fairly large western state. It's a good-sized area. But the Pacific Ocean has an area 705 times the area of Utah. So there's an, an abundance of area out there in the ocean. If we were to farm about half of 1% of all the oceans of the world, we could replace all the liquid transportation fuels used for long-haul vehicles. Now, long-haul vehicles are the ones that batteries really can't operate. In other words, there's no foreseeable battery technology coming down the pipeline that is going to allow a jet aircraft full of three or 400 passengers to fly from here to Singapore. That's just not likely to happen. No battery technologist is saying they have a technology to do that. But liquid transportation fuels, of course, do that routinely. And what we need to do is create liquid transportation fuels to allow not only the, the airplanes, but the container ships, the long-haul trucks, and so on. These are the ones that are really not amenable to battery technology, while short-haul vehicles, commuter cars, delivery trucks, fleets of city vehicles, all the different things that go home every night and you can plug them in, those kinds of vehicles, it's not a problem to make those battery powered. But there's a whole class of long haul transportation vehicles used for cargo transport primarily, and also the passengers in long haul aircraft. Those are really not amenable to battery replacement. And so we need transportation fuels and we want those fuels not to be fossil fuels because about a third of all energy goes to liquid transportation fuels and something like half of that goes to these long haul vehicles. So we want to replace those and we can do that with only about half of 1% of the ocean being farmed. If we were to further go on and, and farm 5% of the ocean, we could replace all fossil fuels everywhere. So we have an interesting feature that the kelp farms produce well over a hundred times as much fuel as was used to create the farm in the beginning. So over the roughly 30-year projected life of these farms, we would expect to create well over a hundred times as much carbon-neutral fuel as was used to create. So the energy that comes out of the farm is typically 150 times what the energy required to make the farm. So even if you make the farm with fossil fuels, let's suppose the first farm you probably do make mostly with fossil fuels because those are the kind of fuels that are available. Even if you make the farm with fossil fuels, that's less than 1% of the total energy produced by the farm over its life. You pay back handsomely the invested energy. That's not really true for some other technologies. So when you buy an electric car and so on, it's good to check to make sure 
that the life cycle energy carbon footprint of the car is good. Well, corn also absorbs CO2 out of the environment. I think people's concern with terrestrial agriculture in general is that it's competing with human food for land, for fresh water, for pesticides, for fertilizers. Tractors burn fuel. Harvesters burn fuel. So there's a whole energy footprint for the corn that is entirely non-trivial. There are significant benefits in terms of global carbon footprint to corn, but the disadvantages are that it competes with human food for all those same issues. In other words, all the things that you use to make corn for ethanol, you also use that same land and water and tractors and harvesters and so on for human food. And and as the human population continues to rise, although it's not rising as fast as it once was, but it's still rising and probably will go over 10 billion people in the not distant future. So we do need to have enough food for all those people. And it makes sense to use terrestrial agriculture to grow that food and to grow energy offshore. One big advantage of offshore is that there's this huge available area which is basically unspoken for. And because we use drone submarines to tow our farms through the ocean, we can descend below the surface anytime we want. So if a ship is on a collision course, we can detect that and dive the farm below the ship so the ship just goes over the top. Similarly, we can avoid storms. If we have a forecast for a very severe storm coming by, we can just dive the farm for a few days and ride out the storm underwater. So we don't need to design the farm to take the worst conditions of the surface, which are extreme. But one nice thing about fuel from kelp is that you can store it for a rainy day. Once you turn kelp, say, into ethanol, you can just store that ethanol. It's a liquid fuel. You can store it. You can convert it to jet, diesel, gasoline, other fuels. But it stores compactly and energetically in a small volume. And so you can hold it for a rainy day. Now, wind farms and solar panels don't do that. In other words, the power you get from wind turbines and solar panels, you either use it or lose it. If you don't use it at the time it's generated, then it's wasted. People are working very hard on batteries, and I applaud their progress. I love the lithium batteries that are in my laptop and my cell phone. The older people will remember the cell phones that used to be this big, right? And that was mostly because of the battery technology has advanced so much in the last 30 years. However, there are strong theoretical reasons to believe that the batteries are not going to be capable, for example, of keeping the grid going during extended periods of low sun and low wind. For example, in the spring of this year, 2021, Europe experienced very low wind. It was a once in a decade or several decade event, and then it just continued all through the summer. So Europe had to burn a tremendous amount of natural gas to keep the grid going much more than they expected because the wind did not blow. Most of 2021, the output of the wind farms in Europe were greatly reduced from what was expected and what they had done last year, for example. Now, if you had kelp fuel, you could just run the existing old spinning turbines and generate electricity without carbon, without putting fossil carbon into the atmosphere. We are big fans of first and foremost replacing the fuels used for long-haul transportation vehicles, which is otherwise a market that 
is not amenable to eliminating fossil carbon. But the second most important use of fuel from kelp is probably keeping the spinning generators running during times of low wind and low sun. Why do you go to work? You go to work to support your family, certainly, but also to make the world a better place and to have fun. And all the motivations kind of fall into one of those three categories. When people look around the world today, seeing the news and so on, making the world a better place is getting increasingly important. People have to pay attention to what they can do as individuals to make the world a better place. The world is not going to become a good place on its own. It's quite clear in just in reading the news that the world goes downhill of its own accord. And if there weren't for thousands and millions of people who are trying to make the world better, phenomenal sacrifices that people make to make the world better, it makes my efforts pale by comparison. When you see what some people do and the risks they take to make the world a better place, I have basically found my job for the remaining years that I have on this earth to try to make the world a better place. And I have a role that I've picked out for myself. And I think every person, should think about when on the day they die, what did they do to make the world a better place? And could they have done more? And we all need to think carefully about that issue, because if almost everyone doesn't work hard to make the world a better place, the world is going to be an awful place. So we really need to pay a lot of attention to all of us making the world a better place. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.